Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. Welcome to the 28th episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast, where we go after the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Last week, we uh, did a solo cast where we talked a little bit about how to um, how to assess the value that your financial advisor is bringing to you. And this week, I am uh, very excited to bring on Joe Van Voris. Joe is uh, with Generational Equity, been there for, well, you're going on 15 years now, Joe, that you've been there? 15 years, yeah. Okay. So... Um, so Joe is going to come in here and talk uh, heavily about mergers and acquisitions, and that's uh, as I'm learning a little bit more about Joe. That's one of his lines of expertise. Um, but that's that's where we're going to take the show today. So, as always, the general disclaimer here is: this is informational, this is educational, this is not meant to be specific financial advice for you. So please consult your own financial team before acting on any of uh, any of the stuff that we talk about here. So, Joe, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, want to want to get a, a little bit of background about you and just kind of establish some credibility here. Can you give a, give the listeners a little bit of understanding of of what you've been doing here the last fifteen years with Generational Equity, and then maybe even a, a little touch on what you did prior to that? Sure. Um, I started my career with a company that did tax planning for the ultra rich. We did estate planning, capital gains tax planning. Um, pretty much the environment for that type of planning was ended when, um, President Bush came in or yeah, Bush came in and, um, you know, eliminated the estate tax. Uh, I shifted over to private equity. I was there for about six and a half years. I was a buyer, uh, buying different companies and assets. Um, and then Almost 15 years ago, I shifted over to mergers and acquisition investment banking. So I've been doing it a long time, 35 years. Um, it's kind of been in my blood exit planning, trying to help either clients get there or uh, from the buy side. So the sell side, advisory, M&A advisory, and or um, as a specific uh, private equity buyer. Okay. Can you maybe just, let's start with a little bit of a definition because again, you kind of got a, a broad range of listeners here. What is, when we talk M&A, what, is, what does that mean? So mergers and acquisitions. Um, years ago, if you ever saw the movie Pretty Woman, one of the things they talk about is this merger of these two companies and he finds his heart and decides that's not the way to do it. You know, there really aren't mergers anymore. It's pretty much an acquisition. The larger company acquires a smaller company. So what we do is we help clients that want to transition from their business into either another career or retirement. So we're called an, an M&A, Mergers and Acquisition Advisory Firm. Our job is to help them um, structure their company in a way to be buyer ready so that they can get into market. And then we facilitate the transaction of selling their business to a third party. 
Okay. All right. Thank you. Sometimes, so these mergers and acquisitions can get a can get a bad rap in in, in the media. Some deals are notoriously bad. You got AOL, Time Warner. Or you got you know there there are different deals out there that that make it to the media. Normally, not in a positive light. Um, and it often, when we're talking about those, those are going to be the large ones. Those are the ones that have you know these are what will you because. Generation equity, they you kind of specialize in the in the small and mid market. Uh, most of the time, whenever you're seeing some of the large ones, that is or the the stuff that's in the media, that's typically large. Those are the ones that are um, often the the bad rap they get has to do with the the investors, the investors getting hurt by by something that that goes wrong here. Um, but generational equity, you guys focus mostly on these the small and mid market. Can you talk a little bit about who we're talking yeah. about there? What you see in the press, that's Wall Street. That's Goldman Sachs and some of the big investment banking firms that you see there or what used to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of times when you see the dust up that happens from that, um, it's because they're um, taking the company and they're breaking it up. The corporate raider days are uh, of the 80s is probably the, the biggest example of that. We don't do public deals. We, we have sold a few and we have sold some companies to public companies, but we primarily live in the middle market and the lower middle market. The middle market is defined as transactions under $250 million. The lower middle market then would be transactions under $50 million. That's our marketplace. It's Main Street. It's not Wall Street. We don't get the headlines. Nobody writes an article about the deals that we do. Um, a little bit different in, in how it comes out. So if, if you say, my client went through and they sold the business and they had a bad experience, I'm going to tell you that's because they they chose the wrong buyer. Okay. Hmm. So okay. if we're in one of two markets, we could be in a buyer's market where the buyer's in control. Or we could be like we're in now, which is a seller's market or more specifically, a leverage seller's market where the seller is in control. We've been in this seller's market for the last eight years, and the valuations accordingly have ticked their way up every year. Yep. Yep. And we're going to get to that here in a little bit um, to to kind of define those markets and and talk a little bit about where we're at now and where we're heading. Um, Generational equity. Give us a, a little background on on them, and I know I mean the the list of awards that that you guys have is exhaustive. So why don't you tell us a little bit of who they are? Yeah, um, it's a private, the largest uh, private M and A firm in America. We have sixteen offices, um, two of which are in Canada. So we do North America. So the U.S. and Canada is our marketplace. Um, if you look at Refinitiv, which is the, the resource out there that tracks our industry and ranks us, they do their league tables. So it used to be Thomson Reuters, Refinitiv uh, was spun off and then sold to the London Stock Exchange. They do the rankings for the industry, both um, Wall Street and then the middle market. We have been number one in the middle market for um, every year for the last 16 years. So those are transactions up to 10 million, transactions up to 25 million. We are tied for number one, uh, transactions up to 50 million. We are number two up to 100 million and number four ranked 
up to 500 million. So a lot of transactions and in our industry, it's not based on the value of the transaction because if you're, you're private, you're never going to tell anybody what the value of your transaction was. Sure. So in the middle market, what they do, the private sector, they're just going to count transactions and the way we're measured are closed transactions. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, okay. So credibility established. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, let, let's go after, all right, we're going to start to immerse ourselves in as a, as a, a as a seller of a business. I, I'm an entrepreneur here and I've got my business and we do $5 million a year or $50 million a year, whatever, wherever we're at there. How does one go about valuing their business? Okay. So that's a, that's a tricky question. Yes, it is. So when I was a buyer, I would tell you it's easy that it's based on a multiple of your EBITDA earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization, interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. It it is not that way. That That is the buyer's method. Buyers are usually in control of the transaction. So they come in and they fool you and they say, Here's how we're going to go and value your your business. This is the way your industry is sold. Go talk to your trade organization. They'll tell you what the average is. All right. People believe it because buyers are at this all the time and they're professional. I'm going to tell you. They have the checks. And they have the checks. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the way to really do it is to get in market, get a large number of potential buyers, and then have the market determine value, okay? We can guess all day with valuations. We do valuations for our clients, of course. But that's not the value of the business. The value of the business is willing buyers and willing sellers in a competitive marketplace. That's where you're gonna find true fair market value. The problem with doing that is people say, okay, take me to market. And I say, but you're not ready to go to market. And they say, well, what do I have to do to get ready to go to market? Well, it's going to take six, seven, eight months to prepare you properly to get into market. Okay. Once we get to market and then we can go to five, six, seven, eight hundred potential buyers. Okay. That's a lot of buyers, a lot more than you can think of. But we have the resources to acquire the buyers in our our processes to be able to have that number of buyers for our clients. Getting to market then, that competitive marketplace, is they're going to bid that price up. Now, when I was a buyer, I never once started with my lowest number or with my highest number, excuse me. I always started with my lowest number, right? I never would. I would never increase it unless the market came back to outbid me. And that's how we want our clients to go to market. We yeah. want them to be in market competitively. And in a little bit, we're going to come to the uh, one buyer is no buyer. And we're going to, we're going to talk about some examples there. Um, yeah. So so I'm just trying to help people walk through if this is their first time, you know, I, I'm in my whatever age they're at, but if they're working on succession planning or, or you know, because so many entrepreneurs, they have, their business is their retirement plan. They, they, they've poured everything into this and they, they might have some 401k money set aside, but for the most part, you know, the bulk of their net worth is tied up into this one single business. And so 
Um, as they get into this process, A, we've just defined this is not a, this is not a quick thing. Um, but do they, do you use the, should, should someone use a multiple to put them in a range or is, are those multiples that they use so far off that you should just ignore those? They're they're usually a a low number. So if you say somebody told me in my industry, I sold, saw something in the news somewhere and they, they referenced a multiple. I'm going to say, okay, but put that as your floor. Don't put that as the ceiling. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, on the same note, and I know this is, this is a difficult one here too, but talking about trying to establish value on intangible assets, that becomes, so if I'm a contractor and I have, you know, this type, I've got this dozer and you know, I've got all this equipment, I can, I can assess a value to that. But the intangible assets are, are obviously the, um, that's, that's a piece that takes creativity and, and some experience as well. So how, how does, how does a buyer Let's talk about that. How does a buyer establish um, their view? Not what they necessarily want to offer as a sale or offer as a price, but um, as they're internally assessing this to decide if they want to buy this company, how does a buyer assess the intangible assets? That's a great question. So I'm going to tell you that 80% of every transaction that we do uh, is in the intangibles. It's off balance sheet. It's, mm-hmm. it's not reflected in the balance sheet. It's your reputation. It's your people. It's your backlog of work. It's, you know, it's, it's all the other things that you, you know, and we call it goodwill. That's what the accountants will call it. Um, and, but never put much of a value on it. So put my buyer hat on for a minute. If I'm looking at this business and I want them to believe that I'm going to buy their company based on the, the past, past three years, th- 36 months moving average on their on their profitability. I wouldn't mm-hmm. even say the term recast. And we'll talk about that. Yeah, here we're going to talk about that here in a little bit, too. Yeah, um, I, w- I wouldn't tell them that. I would say your profit because a private business doesn't do EBITDA. They do net profit. OK. Right. But you're a private business. What do you try to do? You try to push the value down so your financials don't truly reflect what the company really makes. Okay. So Mm -hmm. when I look at the intangibles as a buyer, I'm looking from my standpoint, moving forward, what can I do with this business to make more money than you did? Okay. Or I really want to know the future. I want to know what's going to happen. So one of the things that we do in our process is we do a strategic growth plan, a five-year look-forward strategic growth plan. Some people can call it a pro forma, but I want to have that. I don't want it reflected in my offering memorandum, but I do want it to be presented later when we're negotiating the terms and conditions of the deal. And in there, I want to to show them, to show a buyer, here are the things that I have that make me successful, unique in the marketplace. You as a buyer, with your capital, with your time and energy, I don't have that as a seller, but you can take and leverage that and make more money. As a seller, if I can show the buyer the path forward, how do you make more money? You have different assets than I do. So the together, 
my knowledge, your your capital, your distribution channel, your sales force, whatever it is, that's going to allow you to make more money and them to bid higher. Who? Thank you for that. Um, who who are who are the traditional buyers here, and how sophisticated are they? And, and so, obviously, well, there are two different things. Because one, you have this network of you know thousands of buyers that you can that you can take a business to, and you know who's going to go after a certain type of uh, type of business, certain type of industry. But but who are and, and, and sorry, so you got you got that list, and then you have you have people who are, are local, and they you know, you've got a uh, aggressive you know. 30 something, 40 something year old local guy who wants to, you know, take over this business too. And, and so, so you've kind of got both of those, but in the, for the most part, who are the traditional buyers here? Yeah. So I'm going to divide in two categories here. There are people that knock on your door. There are the competitors across town. They're your employees. And I'm going to say most of the time, those are bottom feeders, not yeah. really, really a buyer. So the professional buyers, so we have a database um, and we have an app called Deal Force where buyers sign up for um, access to our deal flow. And we have 34,000 qualified professional buyers in this database. And to 34,000 quali- qualified. And, and 34,000 that qualified yeah. is like really actually qualified. And so what they have to do to qualify is they have to show us they have the cash to buy our clients today. Because this is a cash business. There are too many buyers in the marketplace right now and not enough sellers. And I don't want to go through the process for 10 months and find out at the end that the buyer doesn't have the capital. And they were going to go to a bank. But, hey, have you seen interest rates lately? Uh, Hey, Mr. Seller, will you carry the note? Okay. So in the professional buyer pool, uh, you know, it's strategic buyers, strategic buyers that are local, strategic buyers that are regional, national, international. So foreign buyers, foreign public buyers, um, family offices, uh, EB-5 visa. I don't know if people are familiar with this at all, but it's a foreign national that would come to the U.S. and get acceleration of a green card and citizenship if they own a U.S. business above $1.9 million. So right now, that's Hong Kong. If you live in Hong Kong, 150 years of capitalism, and now all of a sudden you're going to communism, there are a lot of people that are getting their kids or their grandkids to the U.S. And they want that visa to get in here, 10,800 of them. Um, They don't care what the price is. So I tell my clients, I go, is it okay if we bring in you know, a Chinese national from Hong Kong that speaks primarily Mandarin Mandarin to own and run your business. And they go, oh, no, I don't want those people, that group of potential buyers. I don't think that's a good fit. And I say, I don't care. They're really good bidders. And that's what we're looking for is we want the pressure, right? We want market pressure to raise the price. Sure. So a lot of different type of buyers we want to cast the net wide. We don't want the the local competitor across the uh, across town. We don't want your employees or your children to be the buyers. That represents maybe three percent of our deals. We want to get an independent third party from one of these other um, silos. Okay, so yep. we want. 
strategic, and then we want financial. So private equity, um, family offices, uh, funds of funds, whatever it is, we want the other, both domestic and cross-border, we want them access to the deals. Okay. All right. Let's go after the the next piece on, on recasting. So we talked a little bit about this. So recasting here is I've been, you know, I'm, I'm a standard private business and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to pay as much as possible in taxes. I'd prefer to pay as little as possible. So therefore I do the legal above the board stuff. And we're just going to assume that all entrepreneurs only do legal above the board stuff. Right. Um, <laughs> but we're going to, so I'm doing that and I am just driving down my net profit that I show that I wind up paying taxes on, on my adjusted gross income at the end of the year. So now describe to me what recasting is. So as you said, it is the perfectly legal way, right? When we work with a client, we don't do your taxes. We're not reporting to the IRS. This is for a transaction between two parties, uh, private parties. So they want to know that the information they're being given is accurate. So we look at what we're producing for our clients, recasting the true profitability. If I push down my value because I take a really large salary above replacement cost, I pay myself $500,000, but the person that I would hire to replace me maybe makes $150,000. I'm going to recast that $350,000. That was just your way to take the capital out, okay, your profit. I pay myself rent. I pay myself a little bit above market rate, okay? I'm taking money out more in rents than I'm taking them out in my salary, okay, and then a distribution. So if whatever it is that I can do, if it's I talk about I, paying I, your children, paying or other family members, yeah, all sorts of other things that you maybe wouldn't do. Right. So for example, I sold my last business four and a half years ago. And both of my children were at school and both were employees for the company. And I paid them to be the webmaster and my social media director. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is it legal for me to pay them? Absolutely. Is there a certain amount of money that I have to limit it to? Nope. Can I overpay my kids? I mean, that's legal. I mean, there's a certain level that you can't get to. It's great. Are, we, we talked about that a few episodes ago and in terms of this. Like the, the, the IRS yeah. has guidelines, but you can absolutely right. pay someone and for what they're worth. So my kids were on scholarship, the balance of what they had uh, in tuition, I paid them to do a job and that paid their tuition, okay? Yeah. At a much lower tax level. Above the board, legal, not trying to do anything wrong or, or um, you know, underhanded at all, paying my tax. But what we want to do, let's say that we go out and we buy a new AC unit and we put it on the roof, okay? Now, it's a capital item, not a maintenance one. Am I going to replace that that AC unit again in 20 years? No, it was one time only, you know, non-reoccurring, special, that was my profit. I could have limped the old one along, but I decided to take my profit out of my pocket and, and, and buy that. So I would recast that back as profit, as profit right? Okay. As if I were a public company, right, 
every single dollar to the bottom line. That's what I want to try to present. Okay. And so the, uh, what what are the type of, like, if, if, if I'm just, let's just pick a, pick a business that you've done here recently with this. Like what type of change do you see with recasting from, from what they've shown as an EBITDA before to EBITDA after, after recasting? I I would say it's about 30%, a 30% increase. It's a substantial yeah. And so when you look at this valuation, right, and we talked about buyers want to base it on this multiple. So what do they want to see? The worst document that you can provide them is your tax return. Second right. your, is your financials, your P&L, income statement, and your balance sheet. Okay. But now I have stepped up, right? I've added these things back. So my net profit was here. I've stepped it up. I want my launch point, if there's going to be this multiple in there, I want that launch point to be bigger because it'll be times five, six, seven, eight, nine. Right. Right. And so the way we then, and I don't want to confuse people because I'm using that term multiple here. Um, I don't want to do a multiple for my clients until the transaction is done because that's how our industry tracks deals. Whereas a buyer wants you to do a multiple based on the last three years. Mm -hmm. I'm selling the past rather than selling the future. You want to sell the future with that step up to a higher launching point and then then get the dollars. I don't want them focused on the multiple. I want them focused on what this business can do in the next five years. Okay. All right. I want to, so yesterday, this is kind of, this is switching switching gears a little bit, but yesterday I was at a I was at a family office conference, and there was incredible wealth represented there. A number of businesses were there uh, making pitches, a lot of investment funds, and one of them was a fund in the liquor business. And they were talking about they were talking about look at the the returns that our funds have had here from you know the, a fund we started in 2016, a fund we started in 2018, and 2020. And they're showing these, you know, wonderful returns, you know, we're, that, that they have done here, um, just you know, currently where they're at, each of those funds, what that's been returning. Right. Now, in the last three years, they have seen an incredible spike in sales due to COVID. And the liquor industry as a whole has, has had a massive um, run up. So how do, how do buyers, you know, so, so we, we knew, you know, a buyer... Buyers, you know, maybe in 2020 or 2021, they might see this and and say like, well, there's still a lot of room to continue capturing this wave. Someone in 23 or, you know, we're looking at, you know, 24 here now. How would someone now look at an industry that has had a a big, um, some big event like COVID and what that did to an industry? How would they look at that now and and try to discount that back? Yeah, so... To me, the the big one would be any kind of restaurant, right? Okay. Really struggled and suffered during COVID. Mm-hmm. When now I'm a buyer and I want to opportunistically buy, how do I do that? Um, and how, as a seller, do I try to get a better value for that? Well, I'm going to go in. I'm going to say it was COVID dummy, because look back at COVID, that was an anomaly. That wasn't business as usual. They tried to survive, and a lot of restaurants did not survive. Right. Now, I mean, out of COVID, we're back to normal. So we went, they were on a trend up and went down, 
Now we're back to where it was. We're saying just connect the two points because that's really the reality of what COVID was. It was the anomaly, but we're not in the anomaly. So we've got to take it back and add back into what would have been normal over those those times. Or, so I'm not going to do 36 months of moving average. I'm going to do 18 months or I'm going to do 12 months. Okay. And I weight that higher. Yeah. Okay. So just to, this is, uh, I'm being purely selfish here just for my own understanding of this from a, from a buyer's perspective, when you see, when you see this, go back to this example here of the liquor, the, you know, liquor company, mm-hmm. what are you doing? How, how much value are you putting on this anomaly event versus, you know, versus saying, well, this is the new norm inside this industry. You know, how do, how do you make sure that you're not buying a, into a real estate deal in 2006? So as a buyer, I got to do my due diligence. I'm going to buy into the resources, cap IQ, pitch book. I'm going to look at what the analysts are thinking, where the industry is going. What is this big surge in, in sales? Is the surge going to go up? Is it temporary? My analysis has got to come in and look at a lot of this. Okay. But here's the, here's the rub. So having been in private equity, right, I raised money. Bernie Madoff went to jail and we had financial reform. That financial reform for private equity said that you now have a hold period. You are only able to raise this money and you have to deploy it in a certain period of time. When Mm -hmm. I was in private equity, I had to put it in in six months or a year or I would have had a revolt on my hands. Today, depending on how you write that document, that offering document, you get anywhere from three to five years as a window to place the money. All right. Now, here we are. Uh, Interest rates have been low since 2009, uh, 2008. Right. Yep. Close to zero for 13 years, right? Easy for private equity to raise that money. If you had a company that you wanted to sell in the last eight years, you know what you did? You sold it, okay? To the point now where there's not a lot of inventory, a lot of, of companies that are for sale right now with too many buyers, specifically half of those buyers in our private equity 20 years ago, private equity didn't do anything close to the deal flow that they do now, all right? And they have this money that's getting old. They have to put it in. So do I look at the data? Yes. Do I want to put in a good bid? Yes. But I want to win the deal, right? When I was in private equity, I would look at 142 deals and I would win. I won it. I won one. Okay. Okay. So you've got to factor in what is the prospects of me placing these dollars? Because if I don't get it placed, then I got to give it back. And if I give it back to the investors, who's going to put money with me in the future? Hmm. So let's go, let's go ahead and hit what, uh, so I was going to save this for later, but let's go ahead and talk about dry powder and then we'll, we'll use this and we'll, and then we'll go to the next, you know, we'll save the rest for, for next week, but let's talk about dry powder a little bit. What, what is that? Yeah. So dry powder is this money that the financial side, if that is private equity or family office or uh, a pig called a private investment group, whatever that is, it's it's a 
It's money that has been raised that is earmarked to buy a private business. Okay. Private equity buys private businesses. Mm-hmm. Okay. So dry powder, if we look at that in the U.S., just in the marketplace, and it depends on who you read. There's a lot of information that comes out there, but I'm going to say the numbers that I'm going to quote here are kind of the average of what I'm seeing. Um, they say that private equity has something around $2.1 trillion. And then if you look at the rest of the financial community, that probably tops it up around $3 trillion. And then if you bring in foreign investors, foreign private equity, the total out there that I'm reading right now is somewhere around $5.1 trillion. So of dry powder, a, of money a looking to be deployed. That has to be invested. With a t- with a so basically the, the idea behind this is there's a there is a you know there's a ticker on this and you have to you have to get this deployed within some reasonable amount of time frame before before you have to give it back and you look By real ball. bad to your investors yeah. and for private equity today um, as capital is getting harder to come by on the capital raising front now and again at the conference yesterday and then we've been seeing this across the board with the, the capital raising that we do. Getting bringing capital in today is a lot harder than it was even 12 months ago. And so if I'm a PE firm sitting on that capital today, I need to get that deployed. And therefore, I might go into a competitive situation to pay higher than I'd like to for some businesses. That way, hopefully, I can still turn it into a good profit. It might not be as good of a profit had I got it at a lower price, but I'm still going to be willing to, to deploy those funds at a higher cost today to make sure that I don't have to give that back and look bad to an investor. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the problem is Powerful. you got to, you got to figure out, can I go get a good deal? Can I source a deal on my own and pay less money? Or do I go through a firm like generational to their um, access of deals and pay more money, but get it done faster. Yeah. And so I'm going to tell you that the private equity side, especially it's not about the dollars. It's about time. They need to get deals done or they lose that credibility. So I'll back that yesterday. And so we we have deals that we are putting out to people and we're looking to bring in more investors into them. And at at this conference here, you you have some incredibly wealthy people and their family offices talking about how how difficult and how expensive it is for them to do direct investments. You get people like us, we're we're looking for more investors, but they're saying we are begging for direct investments and it's so expensive for them to go through, do their due diligence and get these things deployed. Um, So they're struggling, looking for opportunities here, but they won't do deals with people they don't trust. Yeah. And so that's the thing. So one one of the guys came out specifically and said that I am aggressively looking to find places to put money. And then you have a conversation. He's like, well, I'm only looking to do deals with people I trust. And so that's where someone coming into generational equity and having the, because you guys are, you guys are tough to get to work with. Just because I have a business doesn't mean you're going to work with me. You're going to, A, it needs to be of a a certain size, but B, it needs to be of of a certain legitimacy because you have your own name and reputation on the line. So that's where, that's where obviously you guys bring a ton of value to the, the equation. I'm grateful to to be partnering with you and to be able to direct people to you. Um, thank you, Joe. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and cut this one here, and we'll 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 continue the, this conversation next week. But Joe, I appreciate you taking the time here. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for having me, Eric. 
Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.